open. Um, there was a lot of information coming out. We weren't, we weren't going to be able to offer people's reusable cups. And we found that actually only 10% of our customers were bringing a cup back. So we were like, well, that's, if we do that, it's like an opt-in thing. Whereas if it's just like mandatory that anyone that buys a coffee, we plant a tree. So we take, it's a portion of our um, profit essentially, but we're like, the, the, the manufacturing process, all of our packaging is compostable like yourself, but it's still the sort of manufacturing process and mm -hmm. the delivery and all these other things, these other factors. So we teamed up with Trees for the Future and every coffee that's sold, we plant a tree and we're already up to about two and a half thousand trees within um, two and a half months. Our aim is at least 10,000 per year. Um, and that they're in Sub-Sahara Africa. Um, so they work with farmers that are, um, maybe their land's just been destroyed because of the heat and all this climate change. Um, and these trees are, are planted by the farmers. They're, they work together, they educate them, they do it themselves with, with the help of the, the team. Um, and it helps with um, shade, with wind protection, and they grow all these fruits and vegetables. Hi everyone and welcome to the Eat Real to Heal podcast. I am your host, Nicolette Richet, and on today's show, we have a wonderful guest, Ed Tayton from the UK, who now lives here in Whistler, British Columbia. And he is here to talk to us about how he started his company, Bread made by Ed. So Ed's Bread is a company in Whistler that makes the most exquisite high-end sourdough bread that is delicious and tasty, 100% organic, made from organic ingredients, sourced as locally as possible, and it's all plant-based whole food. Now, what I love about Ed's story is Ed was born with a hole in his heart. And through that, he had medical procedures to make sure that he was okay, but it was his switch to a plant-based whole food lifestyle, really uh, inspired by his wife, Natasha, co-owner in Ed's Bread, and he was able to take his health to another level. But of course, he didn't stop there. He wanted to help his community, his friends, his family, his um, the whole entire Sea to Sky Corridor get access to clean, real food as well. And so that is when he made his company fully plant-based, whole food, organic, and so much more, particularly made with love, made with compassion for the environment, for animals, for other people. So he is unique in the sense that when we look around the world at all the chefs that are out there that are using refined salts and refined sugar and refined oil to try and make their food taste better, Ed is not doing that. He's actually using the beautiful taste that nature provides us and giving that to us in its whole form so that we can benefit health-wise. Um, emotionally, spiritually, and so much more from eating this wholesome food made in the best way possible that actually contributes to health instead of taking away from it. So when you go into restaurants after hearing this podcast, I really want you as a listener of our show to sit there to just look around at the food that you're putting on your plate. Because as Michael Pollan and so many other scientists and researchers and foodies and um, nutritionists, medical doctors who understand that plant-based whole food is medicine, as they say, 
the food that goes into your body that you choose to put in your body either will harm you or it can heal you. As you know from the work that I do with my clients all around the world, we use food as medicine to help get rid of the inflammation, to help stimulate regeneration on a cellular level so that you can successfully reverse your chronic diseases like infertility and diabetes and heart disease and autoimmune disorders, um, everything like multiple sclerosis and Crohn's disease, uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, and so much more. You do not need to be living with these chronic lifestyle diseases. Those are diseases that are caused by your environment. Now, a lot of people are walking around thinking that they don't have any chronic illnesses because they take blood pressure and lowering medications or because they take insulin balancing medications or because they are taking fertility drugs and eventually were able to get pregnant after years of trying. So then they don't realize that what they actually have is a chronic disease. Our reproductive system operates optimally when our body is neutrified. Our mental health issues are no longer there when our body is neutrified because of the fact that your brain needs nutrients, macronutrients, micronutrients, at every single nanosecond of the day. So if you're not giving your body those nutrients, your mental health suffers, your physical health suffers. Uh, you get chronic diseases that are plaguing our nation and claiming lives that they don't need to claim. So that's why I love having Ed on our show for this podcast because of the fact that he's a chef who was able to change the way the industry was operating. And if we stand any chance of tackling the chronic disease epidemic that is upon us, we are going to need more chefs to step up, to stop using those refined products, to bring in more vegetables to reduce the portions of the meat animal-based products that are out there that they're using to stop dousing our food in refined oils and cooking them at high temperatures to stop smothering our food in salt and sugar the you know these are drugs ultimately these refined oils sugars and salts are drugs that we are addicted to and i know you're addicted to it i know i'm addicted to it it's why I cannot have these foods in my house. And not because I'm a binge eater or somebody who has a, um, an eating disorder like so many people have in our society, but because I know my brain is an animalistic brain. I am governed by my amygdala. That's my limbic system, the animal in me that is hundreds and hundreds and thousands of millions of years old that is really on the hunt for nutrients. And so when we see a bag of chips, that bag of chips contains oils and sugar and salt in high quantities. And so my animalistic brain is actually trying to conserve energy. And so by crushing that bag of chips and eating that bag of chips in one go or eating that steak in one go, I would be fueling my animalistic desire for nutrients right now so that I can go and rest, so that I can recoup my energy, so I can go out there and on the hunt again. Because, you know, our brains are thinking that we may not see another meal for another few days. And so it's always looking to maximize the amount of nutrients it's getting. And it will get them from anywhere. It's not very decisive in thinking, well, I should just get it from plant-based whole foods. 
Instead, because we've been raised on these refined processed oil, sugars, salts, flours, and colorings, and so many other things that are in our food, our body is wired for efficiency and to get as much of that stuff as you can in one shot. Now, it doesn't mean it's good for us though, because our body ultimately doesn't really care if it dies at 50 or dies at 100, because if you make it to 30, 35, and you've already delivered children, then you've done a good job and nature doesn't have much need for you. You're pretty much just taking up resources on the planet is how the whole entire biological system is operating. There's not a whole, there's a huge argument to say there's not really a need for humans after 35 years old. And we see this in our cells are slowly dying. If you are consuming a diet that's high in meat, high in animal products, and high in refined products and processed products and toxins and glyphosates and insecticides and pesticides. But we can stave off that slow decline, that aging process, and we can actually flip that and contribute to living long and well disease-free. So that means living into our 90s and even our 100s being disease-free if we stick to eating predominantly plant-based whole foods and in their complete form, in their abundance, as Michael Pollan says, there's over 300,000 edible plant species on the planet that we can eat. And if we were to consume as much of a diversity as we can in any given day, in any given week, and in any given month and year, that is what's going to contribute to us living long but also living well, because I know all of you have been touched by somebody who has a chronic disease, who has diabetes and heart disease and MS and infertility, and you know the pain that is associated with seeing a loved one in pain. You know the feeling that is associated with actually having that chronic disease, feeling lethargic and that you can't participate in life or work or your relationships to the complete utmost fullest way that you could if you didn't have that chronic disease. So you can change that. And it really starts with the next bite you put in your mouth. And that is what Ed Tayton from Ed's Bread here in Whistler, British Columbia is doing. He is giving you the opportunity to be able to choose a healthier option. And we need more chefs on the planet who can do that. So I just want to congratulate Ed and his partner, Natasha, for bringing good, wholesome food to our community. And let me just tell you a little bit more about Ed before we begin. So Ed is a professional trained chef who had went to culinary school. He worked in high-end kitchens all around the world in the UK, Australia, New Zealand, Canada. And he did what so many people in Whistler do. They come to Whistler to visit for a ski season, a snowboard season, and they fall in love with beautiful British Columbia and the ski resort town of Whistler, BC. And so of course, he moved here permanently. And then, you know, he, to be able to survive in this town, you either need to have a really good job or you need to create a business. And that's exactly what Ed and Natasha did. They created Ed's Bread. So Ed was born with a hole in his heart, like I was saying. And at age 25, he had a stem fitted into his aorta. 
but he didn't really want to be on those meds that he was put on. So he decided to follow in his partner, Natasha's footsteps. She was vegetarian since she was seven years old and she inspired Ed to go fully plant-based, whole food, vegan. And with that, Ed was able to come off of his medications. So in the show, Ed is going to share what it's like to work in the restaurant industry, in that business of trying to provide tasty food to people, but how he took it a step further and said, no, I want to provide tasty and healthy food to people. So we're going to walk that path with Ed and follow his journey. And then, of course, how he went on to creating bread and then having the community go wild for it. And that's what enabled him to open up Ed's bread, which is so delicious. So if you're ever in the area, please come and visit his retail shop, get a loaf of his bread, give him a hug, you know, maybe post-COVID, you can give him and Natasha a hug and thank him for all the work that he does and for inspiring other chefs out there to start preparing healthier, more wholesome meals for their guests and their clients. So without further ado, Let's jump into the show with Ed from Ed's Bread. Thanks for being with us, everyone. And you know what to do. If you like this podcast, please share it with a loved one. Please share it with a chef in your community so that you can inspire them to take that step to start bringing healthier food to you. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Eat Real to Heal podcast, where I am your host, Nicolette Richet. And on today's show, we have a very special guest. Ed Tatton from Ed's Bread, and he's going to take us through his journey of being a traditional um, French cuisine chef and who takes us through the journey of his world into veganism and healthy cooking and eating and his incredible company, Ed's Bread. So welcome, Ed, to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's really, uh, really fun to be here with you today. Yeah, really fun to have you as well, because we don't often have a lot of Whistler folks on our podcast. And so to have somebody from, you know, our hometown here and, you know, you're in Whistler, I'm in Pemberton, we're 30 minutes away for listeners who don't know where that is in the world. We're on the Western side of Canada in British Columbia in beautiful BC. Um, and yeah, you have created an amazing business in our town, like really, truly a homegrown local business that is doing all things right. In my opinion, would you agree? That's very kind of you to say, and it's uh, it's nice to be here because last time we saw each other was before I opened, but you, you helped me a lot. You gave us some good advice. So. Yeah, I thought the advice I was giving you was don't open a retail shop, but you still went ahead and did it, which I love. It was very inspiring. We met for a coffee and I remember we connected through a mutual friend. I think a girl that used to work for you and uh, yeah, it was, it was great. And you sort of recommended, you know, a few um, good lenders that we could use for financial help. And, um, and I remember you sort of grabbing your phone out and just doing a few numbers and you were like, I think this could work. <laughs> oh my gosh. Did I see? I forgot all about that. You know what I remember from that meeting is, I mean, I meet with a lot of entrepreneurs or people who are just wanting to launch a business and, you know, you already had an established product, you know, you were already, I mean, well established and you were just wanting to now move into the retail space. And I mean, I, I love the retail space. I think it's amazing because you get to connect with people face to face all the time. 
Um, some people say it's risky, but I mean, if you are constantly planning um, and looking at the future and setting goals, your quarterly goals and your annual goals, then, you know, you can really make it work. And you guys have done that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. At that point, we were running it just as a Facebook business. So it was all pre-order. I was renting the kitchen um, that I worked at as the sous chef in, in Whistler Alta Bistro. And it was great. It was like a pre-order, so zero waste. Um, so sourdough, uh, um, all naturally leavened, and each week it would it would change, and it was nice. It was building and building, and but it was at the point that I met you, it was sort of without growing the equipment and the space, and like you said, we wanted sort of a brick and mortar um, location where we could expand the product range, and um, it was like moving market research. So it it kind of all fell into place quite nicely. Nice, nice. And I remember I had um, just taken a niacin uh, tab, a B3 tab, and I thought I had taken it like two hours before we were scheduled to meet. And for some reason, it kicked in in our meeting and I went like beet red all over. And I was like, oh my gosh, as if I'm having a niacin flush right now in our meeting. Anyway, that's, I remember that for a lot from our meeting. So <laughs> I want to go back because you have a very interesting history that led you up to, you know, creating Ed's Bread. But, you know, I want to take people through the journey of like, what is it like to, to just make bread? Because it is, I mean, an ancient tradition. So I'm sure you had to learn all about that, which I want to teach people. But, you know, you were a, you were trained as a, and I'm going to get the terminology wrong here, but you were trained as a, um, as a chef, like a traditional chef cooking seafood and meat and using lots of salt and butter and all of the ways that, you know, majority of chefs on the planet are trained. Mm. And yeah, what made had... you... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was just gonna say, what made you want to become a chef, first of all? Uh, my mom's a very good cook. So I guess it comes from, from her. When we were kids, she would always make us sort of pack lunch boxes and things. And I would always make cakes with her in the kitchen. So I think it came from her. But no one in my family was, you know, in the actual hospitality business or anything. Um, and I just had a, a passion for, for cooking and keeping busy. And uh, my dad, I, I was terrible. I had a paper round as my first job and was really bad at it because it was a free newspaper. So my dad took me to this little restaurant um, where we lived and said, look, you know, you can wash dishes. You can be, be in the sort of, you know, hustle and bustle and, and earn your own money. Um, and it just grew from there. I knew I wanted to go to catering college. Um, it was, we were lucky in nearby um, town. There was a very good um, sort of catering college. Um, so studied there for three years and again, worked at another restaurant. And then from there went into sort of the Michelin star sort of fine dining um, kitchens, which I, I liked because I liked the discipline. I liked the sort of like preciseness of everything. I like that we had um, a beautiful uh, vegetable garden with a gardener that we, you know, we could go out in the morning and harvest fresh vegetables and fruits, and then we could use them straight away that day, which was amazing. Um, and then it just grew, the passion grew, and then I realized, you know, I could travel with this trade as well. So I moved, uh, traveled to Australia, lived there for a year, and worked um, in some great restaurants there and New Zealand for a year as well and then moved back to the UK for, for five years and then eventually found myself in, in Whistler in Canada, um, working at a, a great sort of farm to table restaurant in Whistler village called Outer Bistro. 
um, was working there as the sous chef. Um, and it was great. Nick, the head chef there, is a great friend of mine. Um, and we, he would give me full sort of control and, and, and assist with the menu design. So we did a lot of that together. And then my, my passion for, for vegan food, vegetarian food just grew and grew um, through my wife mostly. That came the sort of inspiration that she was always um, more of a vegetarian. And so let's so let's hold on there because I want to really look at this transition and just go back to, you know, I love how you mentioned, for example, working in the restaurant where you have, you know, this beautiful fruit and vegetables and herbs and, you know, leafy greens and everything growing in a garden just outside the restaurant. But yeah. what is so fascinating to me is how chefs can take this amazing produce and literally butcher it like with, yeah. you know, you know, and at the time you didn't know, like you thought like, okay, we're using fresh food. It's local. It couldn't be grown any closer to the restaurant, you know, so from a sustainability perspective, that's amazing. But then we take this great food and then smother it in salts and refined products and turn and deep fry it and do all of these different things. And so we're turning this healthy, healthy food, which is like there to prevent disease, but then chefs turn it around. And I know they don't even, you know, really associate what they're doing in that cooking phase, right? And food prep phase. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. when you were in the UK, like what was your diet like? Were you, you know, a healthy eater growing up? Were you? Yeah, I would say relatively, like I said, like I've always, um, when you're cooking this sort of food for, um, you know customers that are paying a lot of money like some of these restaurants they would pay a lot a lot of money um then as a as a staff member you would just eat something really simple like a, a pasta dish or a salad or something because maybe you'd only have 10 15 minutes mm -hmm. at, at break and then you'd have to get back to it so one chef is normally um given the task to feed you know 10 or 20 staff members so it's just a, a big one pot wonder and sometimes that can be i find that more, more interesting because it's sort of yeah. you have to be um quite skillful in in getting flavors making something quickly that's going to be nutritious and sustain everyone for the rest of their shift yeah so, and it's and that part's too, like I've worked in the restaurant, I had worked in the restaurant industry serving um, mostly in a lot of bars and that serve food as well. And I remember, you know, because I've been into health for about 25 years and, you know, where food is medicine. And, but I remember, you know, asking, for example, the Szechuan green beans that the chefs would make and serve to our customers. And I would say, well, can you do it without salt and oil? And the chefs would be like, no, I can't cook without salt and oil. And they get so frustrated that I was asking for literally like just steamed veggies, a whole, you know, variety of them, but they didn't even want to serve it to me because they're like, it's not going to taste good. And I'm like, no, it will taste good. Like, just give me my vegetables without the salt and the oils and I'll be happy. Yeah. Um, so chefs definitely um, is so skilled in making food taste incredible, but there's a palette of what the customers want, but then there's also the palette of what people need to stay healthy as well. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think, yeah, generally I've had a pretty always eaten healthily. Like I said, when I've been at home, we all have always eaten a, a veg uh, heavy diet. Mm -hmm. um, and even like I said, with, with growing up with my mom and everything like that, she had four children. So she was quite, 
she had to be quite frugal with sort of money and everything. So she couldn't, you know, afford like these amazing like olive oils and things like that. So it was normally just like boiled broccoli or boiled carrots, you know, with some, some other vegetables and, and things. So um, I think that, that's where my love of vegetables started and then it's just progressed. And, and as you sort of educate yourself, like you said, you eat, you eat better and you look at ingredients in a different way. Yeah, exactly. And we have, you know, the uh, Michael Pollan uh, says that we have like 250 plus, you know, edible species, uh, plants on the planet that we can eat. So it's not that, you know, when you want to include vegetables and produce and, and fruit and stuff into your diet that you're minimizing or, you know, a lot of people are on these elimination diets when it's like, no, it's really, it should be an abundance diet, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I think I heard, it's interesting you say that because I think I heard the average average person consumes between like seven and 12 vegetables in their diet yeah. you know they always go to the store and they just buy the same same things and when your plate could be you know a rainbow of colors and nutrients and they balance off each other as well you know like certain minerals and vitamins unlock other vegetables do you get even more out of those Exactly. And that would be super fascinating if all chefs thought like that, like how do we pair these so that we're unlocking nutrients and making them more available to our customers, as opposed to, you know, a lot of the cooking techniques, you know, just like slamming everything with butter and, and oil and salt, then that actually deprives your body of nutrients. Um, and then causes a whole array of other problems. So when you were at Alta Bistro then, um, what was that like trying to introduce, you know, these, you had obviously, you know, great people to work with who were supporting it, but, you know, was it intimidating or what was that like to it want was, to include more healthy foods? First, um, I remember we put on a, a dairy-free, egg-free, like a vegan dessert. Um, and there was a bit of skepticism, like, how is this going to go? Um, and then we rolled that out for, for a little while. I think it was kind of a, a raw um, blueberry cheesecake, actually. And, and it sold so well that the owner, Eric, um, actually was like, this is great. Actually, our dessert sales have increased um, because a lot of people, you know, they, they didn't want something. They might, you know, avoid dairy. They might not be vegan, but they might be avoiding certain things in their diet or, or gluten or whatever it might be. So... I think for a business owner, I then it sort of made sense. Okay, if we can increase sales, then it's going to be easier to to get the ball rolling and and get more options on the menu. Um, okay. And then same with the sort of savory dishes. Instead of, I used to hate going um, out for dinner or lunch somewhere, and they say, "Oh, we can make it vegan, but we have to take this away and we have to take this away," and it's like an incomplete dish. So why not just make our vegetarian options vegan? And then there's no substituting. It's like, yeah, this is great for vegetarians and vegans. And maybe, um, you know, we'd substitute nuts. So for sunflower seeds or something like that. So just really um, bringing everyone together and everyone feels included and they don't feel like they have an insufficient dish. Um, and then that, I think that's when it really sparked my excitement that I'd cooked with all these animal-based products for so long. Um, and then when you make sort of like a cashew cream, you get that creaminess and the richness, mm -hmm. but it doesn't coat your taste buds. So you can't really taste any other flavors. Whereas the cashew, you get that delicious, silky, smooth consistency, but you get all the other herbs and 
flavorings that you've got in there and the vegetables so that's when it really sort of like i think the light bulb went off and i was like wow i really want to dive into this more and explore you know fine dining plant-based restaurants um and that's when a friend told me about matthew kenny um mm -hmm. in america and i was like right that's the next restaurant i'm going to and we, i went to la and ate at um his place in venice um and now we're actually doing his online course there's a um, future food institute online cooking course that me and natasha are doing together just at home in our spare time and it's amazing to to still find new techniques and and new processes yeah it really is um you know there's so much learning that needs to take place and there's several courses and we'll put them in the show notes as well so people can access those courses we have a course too that we just launched and hearing your story like when we're in the pre-recording uh conversation just now i was like oh my gosh we need to partner with you on our new plant-based whole food chef for our course for chefs and you know and it's not to teach people actually like how to chop food it's not to teach people how to you know make a beautiful dish it's to teach chefs about the science behind not using butter, oil, salt, um, and how do you change your customers' um, taste buds over to appreciate the actual real flavors that are in these, you know, 250,000 plus vegetables and make mm -hmm. them actually crave your food because now they can eat as much as they want, as often as they want at your restaurant, never feeling like they're indulging or especially because you know, one in two people are dying from heart disease. One in three people have diabetes. So a lot of people can't eat out at a lot of these restaurants anymore. So we want to teach the chefs the science behind, you know, for example, Matthew Kenny's um, course. And so I might be calling you after this podcast to be like, Ed, we're partnering. Um, but so as you're making this transition, obviously, I mean, Ulta Bistro, I love that restaurant. There's only probably two restaurants in all of Whistler that we ever, you know, eat out at um, when it comes to fine dining and Ulta Bistro is definitely, well, it's actually Ulta Bistro would probably be the only one other than sushi, right? The next yeah. closest healthy thing. <laughs> so you started making these changes and then when did you get into the bread making side? So I probably made my first loaf of sourdough about 12 years ago um, at a little French bistro restaurant that I worked at in Bristol in the UK, which is on the West Coast. Mm -hmm. So when we came back from Australia and New Zealand, we wanted a change. So we were um, both sort of grew up on the East Coast, like L the London sort of area in the Southeast. So we thought we'd heard great things. We'd got into surfing um, and just wanted a change to so move to the Southwest. So I worked at a great restaurant there. Again, it was a bit more simple. It was kind of um, still farm to table, but just not as sort of refined, just good sort of healthy, um, everything made in house. And the uh, head chef and the owner wanted to start making baguettes and sourdough to serve in the restaurant instead of buying it in. I love the way that sort of if you make it yourself, you can control quantities because I hate food mm -hmm. waste. So instead of buying in and guessing how much you need to make, or you have to pre-order the bread two days before, you don't know how busy you're gonna be. So you could literally make it the day before, say this is how many people we have reserved. We, we, we know we'll use this much. Um, and he didn't really know much. So we kind of le learned the, the process together, which was amazing. It was really good to, um, to start the, the sourdough process in that way. 
Um, and, and making uh, sourdough is, I mean, it's not easy. We've tried so many times to make it. And for some reason, my husband and I, like it comes out as biscotti. So we just turn it into yeah. biscotti. And that's, I think that's, so that's where it started. And I sort of liked it. I wouldn't say I, I enjoyed the process um, and then sort of made it. And then we moved to, so over the course of that five years living in Bristol, stayed at that restaurant the head chef opened up a sort of um, boutique hotel um, he became executive head chef so moved me there as the sous chef then the head chef um, and we made bread and we ended up making five different breads each day three of them were sourdough so me and the pastry chef i saw then passed on what i knew and we kept you know kept learning like you said it's a constant with anything food-based you're always learning and that's why I love it I think even when I'm in my 80s I'll still be you know wanting to learn more and um, playing with new techniques and things uh, and then yeah so that carried on then we moved to to Whistler worked out a bistro they were buying bread from Nita Lake Lodge because um, they had a good pastry pastry section and they would send us baguettes and it comes back to the food wastage we, we always had a, a standing order of I think it was 10 10 baguettes on the weekdays and 20 on the weekends each day it would turn up it would be fresh and it was delicious it wasn't sourdough um and i sort of said to nick look i think we could start a program here um i went off to the island because actually i was only supposed to be in Whistler for six months it's the classic story you come from yeah. six months and this is i've been here seven years now yeah. uh, so i had a six-month contract at outer bistro and then it was the shoulder season, so it was getting a bit quiet. So I decided, me and Tash went to Vancouver Island um, to um, do some woofing, which is working on organic farms. So, you, so it was good because we, you know, we love fruits and vegetables. We wanted it to support local farms, and it's just a trade. So you work um, between five to seven hours a day, and they feed you and give you board um, so accommodation. So it's a nice trade-off, and you have free time and can explore go on hikes and during that time obviously I'm a chef used to working 12 to 14 hour days mm -hmm. um, I was like perfect I'll start a sourdough culture so okay. I started a starter um, would start making bread and take it you know for the meal times for the farmers and their families and just gift it and say you know you're helping us like just buy some organic flour make some sourdough um, and then brought that culture back to to Whistler to, to start working out of Bistro again. And that, that's when the, the bread program started and the sourdough started out of Bistro from that step of starter that I'd sort of, you know, created on the island. Um, and then it just, it grew from there. I, I loved it so much. I was making sourdough at home as well, gifting it to friends. Um, we will go into local yoga in um, Creekside with yeah. Tina. I love Tina. She's an amazing lady and she yeah. sort of, you know, as soon as she heard that I was making sourdough, she was like, right, that's it. You've got to bring me a loaf. And we would trade sort of, you know, a yoga pass for a loaf, a few loaves of bread each week. Amazing. So perfect. I was like, I get free yoga. She gets bread. It's a great yeah. trade. But the, then what happened was I'd be bringing warm bread to the yoga studio and the, the other students would be like smelling it during the class and be like, what, what is this? So it kind of grew from there. It was like a sort of, again, another light bulb went off and 
Ash said to me, you know, maybe you could speak to Alta because they don't open for lunch. Maybe you could rent their kitchen. It's a professional kitchen. It's all been, you know, tested and checked. You could make the bread on Wednesday and bake it on Thursday and people could just come to the restaurant and, and collect it. And so that's smart. How, that's how bread was born, really. Um, from the yoga studio, people just naturally taking an interest. And I remember the first ever week I made 30 loaves, which is the most amount of bread I'd ever made. Um, so I was a bit nervous, you know, I'd made sort of a dozen or so for restaurants, but more than double in that. And then I think by the third or fourth week, we were up to 50 loaves and it just kept growing and people were telling each other, like, you know, that I wanted it to be this sort of like hipster, cool, like underground bread club, um, Brad Pitt style. But what ended up happening, it was, uh, it was young mums. <laughs> it was basically the mum's club that they would drop the kids off at school and then come and pick up their bread. But it was- And I remember that. Like, I remember that fully when you were selling your yoga at the yoga studio. I never ended up getting a loaf for myself, but um, it was the underground, like, movement that was happening. Like, hey, did you hear about this guy, Ed? He's making bread and, you know, you can only get it. Like, you know, it was so, it really was an underground movement. So, yeah. It's pretty funny, the local paper, The Peak, they, they ran an article three or four months in and they said the best bread in Whistler that you've never heard of. Totally. I remember that article too. Yeah. So yeah. it was really fun. It was nice because I was making it on Wednesday that people would come in and I would bake it in small batches. The ovens are small. So I would bake 10 in one oven and eight in the other because it was in the restaurant, there's two kitchens. And I would run between and serve serve people. And it got, it grew and grew over the years. Um, it was 18 months that I was doing it there. And I think on average at the end, we would, I was doing 150 loaves um, in each week. So one week it'd be a sesame loaf, the next week it'd, it'd always just be one sourdough, but each week it would rotate. Um, so also it was market research in the sense I could see what, what customers would like. If, if sort of the sales dipped a bit, I'd be like, okay, so, a walnut and fruit loaf isn't as popular because it's not as versatile, even though some people love it for, for breakfast. You know, you can't make a, a sandwich with it necessarily. I would, but not everybody would. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, jam sandwich. Totally. Uh, <laughs> so, so it was very fond memories of, of that time. Yeah, what I love about how you did this is that just because we get a lot of, you know, people who want to launch a business and he'll come with and sit with me and they've never ever even they've never done any market research they're like i have this product and you know they've tested on a couple people but they want to just jump right into making their product and getting a retail shop or you know just going which is an okay way of doing it as well yeah. however yeah. i would i think the market research is important but also i love what you did because you got to perfect the art of your product along the way. You got to test which product worked well. You got to see if you liked doing it at a bigger scale, like going from 10 loaves a week to 30 loaves a week to 100 plus loaves a week. I mean, you get to see if you actually like doing the work. And this is what I think, and I really encourage people to do that is before they like get a domain name, before they print a business card, like we have Facebook, we have Instagram, use it and test your product over and over again and do it for six months. And after six months, if you still like making your product, then, then go for it. Sure. Yeah, no, I totally agree. It was like, 
it definitely made me really analyze like what do i want like when i started at alta bistro i was the the reason i i was drawn towards that sort of restaurant is because that's where i could see if i was to open a restaurant i would do something similar you know these huge fine dining restaurants like araxi and barefoot they've got so many investors and like millions of dollars you know whereas alta bistro is the family-run restaurant it was more achievable if i was to to do something on my own but they've sort of filled that gap in a way and and i saw and then i was like well no one's actually doing not first of all no one's doing like a vegan bakery and no one's doing exclusively sourdough like we don't use any any baker's yeast at all um wow. so it was like that's where the sort of the next light bulb went off and and we were like okay so we've kind of outgrown that but fair enough the rest the restaurant were like well, we kind of want our sous chef back now because it was taking more and more of my time you know before i could manage it and then understandably they were like okay ed so really you know we'd want our chef back and we need the space back it was i was taking more and more storage um so it was a gentle nudge to sort of say where are you going with this what's the next Mm -hmm. step um and that's where we were like okay like let's look at the finances that's when we sort of met um and we had we were lucky enough we had some a property in the UK so we decided well that's you know hard to manage now more and more it was an old Victorian house mm. we decided to, to put that on the market because it was also the point um, where Brexit was was happening and we were like what's going to happen financially with this is the property you know market just going to crash let's just sort of like we, we've decided we're, we're residents in Canada now um, let's m- make the switch and let's invest that into into a business wow in whistler um, and, you did. and i think that's another thing if you really believe in your product you know we put our property on the market invested all of that money um and then that shows lenders that you really believe in it if you're sort of personally investing in that yeah that's a really good point because again um i one of the number one rules of financing when you want to go out and get money is they'll, they'll ask you to put up 30 percent of whatever you're asking for. So if you're asking for a hundred thousand, be prepared to put down 33,000 of your own money. And it could be, you know, in kind, you know, equipment, for example, or you're going to add your vehicle and get, donate that to the business. So, you know, but they have to see that you're willing to, you, you're willing to have your neck on the line as well, because it is risky. Any business is risky. Um, and we did the same thing. We had sold, we had bought a place in Whistler, one of the Whistler housing authority places, and we sold it. And we literally had $33,000 in cash that was just like there for the first time in our life, we had savings. And I looked at my husband one night when we were laying in bed and I said, I want to start a cafe. And he's like, really? Like you've, you've never even worked in a kitchen before. And I was like, I know, but I've seen restaurants, you know, people I've worked in restaurants serving food and beer. And so we did that. We, he was like, yeah, go for it. Um, and I think when you also put your money in, Mm -hmm. then you're going to be hungry because you're not going to want to lose it. So you're actually going to fight harder for your business as well. So I think it's a good maneuver. If you think you're just going to go out and borrow that money, then you know, I've seen it. it, you're right it, it definitely drives you you're like okay this can't this can't fail and i'll do whatever it takes you know if i've got to be there day and night you know i'll do it um yeah. 
I remember when we opened a, a few customers that obviously like have their own businesses, they're just like terrified. They're like, don't burn yourself out. Like we want you to, we want you to be here in, you know, 10 years time. So yeah. And have you burnt yourself out at all or how has that been going? The first year was very hard. Like I've worked hard in kitchens before, but I've never, I wasn't uh, like you. I, I was, I had a kitchen background, but I've never worked in a professional bakery. So I, I knew how to organize kitchens and I knew how they worked generally, but it's very physical, like lifting 20 kilo sacks of flour. Yeah. And we get through, you know, in the busy times, sometimes up to a, a ton of flour, you know, in a, in a couple of weeks. So, and that's got to come in the front door. It's got to be unloaded and then you're using it. So, and lifting the dough as well out of the mixers. So it's, it's a lot more physical in that way. Um, but that's where I think like every morning have a nice like yoga practice, do some stretches, looking after your body. Like you say, not just sort of with food, but sort of moving and stretching and things like that is, is quite key. Um, so that's definitely helped. And that's, from Tina like I remember going to Tina's classes and being like I can only I can only do yoga at her studio but she kind of gave us a foundation to sort of be able to do a practice at home mm -hmm. um, it's definitely helped mentally as well you know? yeah and as an entrepreneur you have to have the mental release and it were like whether it's through music or reading or movement movement is always great um, you know, yoga, and it doesn't have to be excessive as well. Like it really can be gentle um, as well, but you do need to take care of yourself. And I know I've fallen short of that many times through running the business. Cause some days it's just like, it is a 12, 14, 16 hour day, or if it's payroll that week, you know, you're, yeah. you know, it is tough, but it's, it's critical. Yeah. So if you have those tools first going into your business, which I had as well, and it sounds like you did, then it does make being an entrepreneur, I think a little bit easier not that it's ever going to be easy yeah totally but yeah wow. it was well received the first year was amazing we were a week away from hitting our first birthday and then the covid lockdown happened um but we like everyone we just had to pivot and we sh we closed on a sunday and the the next day the monday we had an online shop available for for people to pre-order bread and cookies and um, flour and all the cookbooks and things like that so um, we, we were very lucky we had a sort of pro, you know, a product that we can, could spin off. It forced us to open that online shop earlier than yeah. we would have done. Um, and it, and again, it made us analyze, you know, what are our busy times when we do reopen the shop? What's the best days to open? What's the best hours to open? So it was a good thing. And also like focus on yourself. Like, am I going to burn out? Like, do we need to be? working this this hard and this many hours to achieve our goals yeah and you did it really well i we heard feedback from our customers so a lot of our customers shop at your store all the time and order from you and um, what well, most of our customers do actually and i remember them coming in and being like oh my gosh like ed and natasha have nailed it like you know you had the phone system in place where you would that people would arrive um yeah. they'd put in their order arrive and then you just call them and be like okay it's your turn to come in so you didn't even have to have like people waiting outside when covid hit like they were able to just come which was brilliant yeah it was a scheduled pickup so we'd only have a customer in the time there was a lot of sort of we have a lot of elderly customers i think everyone for that first month or two it was the unknown everyone was so sort of like they didn't really want to be around each other so we had a table at the front of the shop right by the doors 
they would schedule a pickup and every five minutes we would have a customer come in and they were amazing the community were really incredible during that time and still are now like they're so mm -hmm. supportive word of mouth is so strong you know in this town um and everyone be respectful of each other's you know space and time make sure they were there a few minutes early it was all like we'd pack as we went and we would bake as we go as well so they were still getting fresh little you know warm bread that's our thing that we just bake i, I hate going into bakeries where there's no bakers there so the whole idea with our bakery is that it's all fresh it's all baked on the day you know sometimes coming out of the oven 20 minutes before you pick it up that is amazing um my mouth is watering right now by the way um yeah if you haven't tried it you definitely have to order your bread from ed um ed and natasha the next time you are in whistler do you deliver outside of whistler we don't i did uh, i do love it sometimes we get phone calls i had a guy called me the other day and he said we came to whistler last summer and we had your cinnamon buns and they were amazing but we're in miami can you send us some to miami and i was like I'm really sorry. They're just best like eaten as fresh as possible. But thank you so much. And he was like, very, he said, I can't stop thinking about them. That's <laughs> so so it's just, yeah, it's just, just Whistler. So yeah. I, when people write to us these nice messages, I say, well, Whistler is an amazing place. Please come and see us and yeah. explore this cool area. Yeah, no, we had the same thing too with our uh, raw vegan desserts because, I mean, you really, not a lot of people were selling them at all. I mean, I don't think anywhere in Whistler at the time when we had ours. And yeah, we got a call from the Netherlands, a guy asking, he's like, do you think you can cold pack it and ship me your cheesecake? Wow. And I was like, uh, no, first of all, the thing weighs 500 pounds and, you know, <laughs> and it's, you know, we want it to be as freshly made as possible too. So, um, but it is a nice, it warms your heart when people want your food from across the world. So let's go back into how, uh, what Natasha was doing at the time when she started transitioning um, into more vegan living. Um, and I want to dive down that route because you, you know, being a, you know, traditionally trained chef, mm -hmm. um, you know, what was that like when, and how was that transition when your partner is, you know, doing it and bringing it home? Sure. I mean, anyone that knows Fash or Natasha, she's very strong-willed it's kind of like whatever she says is like she's from london so when she decided to go vegan it was pretty much like no animal products in the apartment and if you don't like that then you can go with them as well <laughs> so i was like okay i'll get on board you know that's the way it is and that's why i love her so much because she is so passionate and so strong-willed you know you see these cowspiracy and these sort of documentaries on Netflix and and I don't know how people can watch those sorts of things and then carry on consuming certain certain animal products or any animal products so for me it was she just led by example and I was like well this is not going to be a bad thing um with you know heart condition and high blood pressure you know I'd be silly not to get on board and to do this um and then luckily it carried on at Alta Bistro for staff meals and things like that we would always like make sure there was a vegan option. Sometimes it was all vegan, or at least there was, you know, some stuff that myself and a couple of other people that preferred to, to eat that sort of way were able to still have a, a nutritious meal. And um, so it was, it was well received um, at work and at home. It was easier and easier. We're both 
even Natasha's an amazing home cook. So, um, yeah, it was, it was good. And where was she working at the time? You had mentioned she was working somewhere and she was looking at the food that they were feeding the kids or? So she, she actually, she's a trained English teacher. So again, when we traveled to Australia and New Zealand, we both kept the same um, profession, which was great. So she could teach English. She um, studied at university to high level. So she was able to teach English as a foreign language in Australia and New Zealand. Um, once we got to Whistler, there were no jobs available uh, in any of the private English um, language schools. So she reached out to Whistler Blackcomb. They're obviously one of the huge employers in town. Um, just went to a job fair and they gave her the position of first cook um, at the mid-station on Whistler Mountain, uh, cooking for 800 kids, <laughs> which she had no experience in, but you know, it's all packaged food. It was just sort of like reheating. And yeah. and then she was like looking at the, the pack of, in, you know, the ingredients on the back of these things, these like wieners and these, you know, processed meats. And you're feeding, you know, your five to 10 year old kids this absolute, you know, rubbish. Um, and I think that really sort of like sparked it for her. She was like, I don't want to, I don't want to be eating this. I don't want to be feeding kids this. Um, and each day she would go down to the village and she would go, um, it was near the gondola, Naked Sprout, another sort of juice bar. And she would buy a juice and a salad and she'd go to the green moustache. And she's like, this, you know, it makes you feel good. You, mm -hmm. It gives you energy. Uh, you know, it feeds your soul and your body and your mind and everything. Um, and I think she sort of then just got talking to them and there was a job available there. So once the winter finished, um, she worked to the um, at the, the Naked Sprout there. Not for a terribly long, for a few months, but again, she was cooking and she was preparing these salads and then sort of having to read cookbooks at home and um, went more on the raw side for the summer. But again, it's good to have that balance. I think mm -hmm. sometimes when you eat too much raw food, it can be hard for, for, your, for your gut and everything to process that. Um, and that's where it sort of sparked it. And so she brought that back home and she was like, you know what, I really don't want to be even eating eggs and cheese and dairy anymore. And, um, and that's where the sort of journey began more. She went vegan, um, first I would eat vegan at home. And then I would eat, um, at when we ate out as a special treat, because I had that mindset, oh, maybe, you know, if we went back 50 years where it was just sort of like you eat it as a special treat and you don't just eat it. You know, some people eat, you know, meat three times a day, you know, they overindulge and that's mm -hmm. why we're in. For me as well, it became environmental, the animal welfare, and then for our own health as well. So there's so many sort of like different factors involved. And that's what I love about, um, you know, sometimes you know, it's hard because the word vegan itself can be taken out of context, you know, for certain individuals where they think like, oh, you hippie animal lover, you know, I'm never going to do that. And, you know, they, they won't even open their minds to what it can mean. But what I love about, you know, plant-based whole food eating or veganism or vegetarianism or whatever we want to call it and label it. I personally like the label nutritarian. It's where you just want the most nutrients. You know, every tablespoon that goes into your mouth of food, it should have the cleanest, most bioavailable nutrients. And 
but there is the environmental side and there is the animal welfare side and there is the social justice side and there of course the health side you know that's how i got into this um but there's so many different angles so just like yoga i mean you might go and do a hatha class and not like it but then you don't even know that there's yin restorative or that there's you know incredible just breathing yoga that you could do or walking meditation yoga there's so many different types so people are so quick to shut themselves off of things because of a label um, but it's more important to think about you know all the other benefits that you get from that which in your case, from a health side, you know, you had this heart condition, right? That had been treated um, through, thank goodness, through medical intervention that we have available. But I love what you said about the doctor when you went for your stress test and um, that they said, you know, and you had been off medication. So just go into a little bit of that and tell us, you know, your heart condition, how it was treated, and then what the doctor said, the last test that you just had. Yes, yeah, so they first found when I was five um, and starting primary school, I'm not sure I can't remember call it the same, but five years old starting the first sort of school, um, they did a little like test at the doctors and they found like an irregular heartbeat, um, a, a whole small hole in my heart and that sort of heart murmur. Um, and that so it was monitored from then and they always said I'd have to have a stent fitted. Um, so basically just the aorta is shrinking so then causes higher blood pressure. So when I was 25, um, so 10 years ago, I had uh, a stent fitted, so it's keyhole surgery, so they go up, and it's basically a spring um, that they go up through your valve, and they, and they just open it up, and it just goes inside the aorta, um, and it just opens the valve up, and they're amazing. They can, they can last 20 or 30 years wow. before the sort of cartilage starts growing around it and shrinking it, and they're always working on new ones, I'm sure. By the time I need, you know, another one fitted, it will probably last me for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. um, but because I had that surgery, they still wanted to put me on medication after that, which I was quite shocked because I thought, great, I'll have this operation and then they'll just monitor it and that will be it. I've, I've never been a fan of medication. I've heard you on previous podcasts that you've done, you know, you're the same. You don't really have anything at home and you know, it's all about food and things like that and wellness. Um, I, I try and always, you know, even avoid paracetamol and those sorts of things. Um, so it didn't really sit well with me that they were like, okay, you can go on medication now, you know, and they were like, you'll, you'll just be on that for the rest of your life. But I was 25. I was like, well, there's no research. You know, my grandfather at the time was 104. So I was like, I'm, I'm going to be alive a long time, fingers crossed. Um, I've got good genes. So I was just like, okay, what can I do to get off this? So quit smoking, you know, typical chef, um, sort of like ate better, did everything I could, and then moved to Whistler um, the next year and just sort of with the, with the more active lifestyle being in the mountains. Um, saw my local doctor and said, you know what, I, I don't really want to, I had to pay for the medicine here because obviously in the UK we have the NHS, so it's, it's free, whereas my travel insurance wouldn't cover it. So I think it's probably that sort of comes from my mum being a bit tight, basically. <laughs> this is a good motivation. That's yeah, a good motivation too. So I was like, okay, how can I get off this? I don't want to take the medication. I don't want to pay for the medication. She was like, great, let's, let's just start taking you off slowly. Let's not just take you straight off. Mm -hmm. So 
reduced it over the next six months went to see her for the for the final visit when I hadn't taken any for a couple of months and she was like well whatever you're doing keep doing it and by that point I was sort of on a vegan diet um act being a lot more active doing the yoga but she didn't really want to I told her I was like it's great I'm like I've gone vegan and done all this like woohoo and uh yeah, she was like, well, I'm not going to comment on that, but whatever you're doing, keep doing it. Um, and Which, then, yeah, they, yeah. That, and that part is so crazy, like, because so many of my clients, they experience the same thing where they're like off their meds now, their surgery has been canceled. They didn't even have to go get their surgery and they're feeling amazing. They've lost weight. All their blood results come back normal. And the doctors don't even get curious about it. They're like, okay, you don't need any. And I'm like, no, no, no. Stop and connect A to B. And this is what I would love to do in your case too, because we know that number one, being off the animal-based proteins and fats um, increases your endothelial function, which is the lining of every vascular, you know, part of your body. So every vein and artery and, you know, every lining of your cells and muscles. And so when you are off animal-based products, your everything flows actually. It's very fluid as opposed to rigid and stiff. And in your case, particularly, you would yeah. need the expansion of your aorta. You would need to have everything being very flexible and loose versus rigid and stiff because that's when blood clots would set in, especially in your case. Um, mm -hmm. So it's really easy to look at the very basic science and get, and I don't know, get so excited and curious about this because we have especially an epidemic of heart disease in our country and in our in internationally as well. Mm -hmm. So that is very cool. And so now you're off all your medication. Yeah. So I've been, I haven't taken any med medication for about um, over three years. Uh -huh. um, and, and they, I, I did actually see a doctor um, last week in, in Vancouver, every two years, they check up on me. And like you said, I had a stress test where they put me on a, a treadmill and increased the, the, um, the elevation and the, the, the angle and the speed and all this sort of thing. And they monitor it and um, they said, oh, we're not going to take you to your maximum because due, because of COVID, we can't do, um, can't do CPR. We can't do like resuscitate you if you had some sort of issue because you have to wear the face mask and everything like that. So they just take you to about 80, 85% of, of your sort of target heart rate that they want to get you to. Um, so that was really interesting and saw the specialist and, and she said, you're doing really well, potentially, you know, in when you're in your fifties or sixties, we might need to put your medication, but that's a long, long way away. Yeah. So we'll, we'll just see as it goes. Yeah. And I mean, your condition is a little bit different because it sounds maybe more like it was perhaps like a genetic thing or it was a genetic they were saying, or was it more? Yeah. It's not hereditary or anything like that. It's oh. kind of, yeah, it's, it's a little bit strange. They did mention like if we were to have children in the future that they would do one more echo test on the, on the baby, just to make sure that they catch it nice and early just mm -hmm. to monitor it. But they said it's an average person, I think is two to 3% a chance of having some sort of cardiac issue and it goes up to maybe four or five percent so it's still still very low um but it is strange that it no one in my family has any other um conditions like like mine 
Well, and this is the part too that, again, I, I mean, every time somebody tells me about their health issues, I just want to go through the full history and look at it. But the one thing we do know is that in a baby's development and in a child's development, if you don't have enough nutrients in your body at any particular time when there's a massive development happening, you can get things like ruptures, weakened, you know, like hernias because your intestinal system is not as strong and robust. But when you have a lot of nutrients in your body, then your body is in regenerative mode all the time. And so you just need basically that complexity of amino acids and micronutrients, which are more important than even the macronutrients, which you're going to get anyway. Um, and so once you have enough of everything, it just, your body will always repair things and stop it from getting damaged. Right. So, yeah. you know, from a nutrient perspective, I mean, and it could have just been something as simple as that an environmental, you know, issue and that environmental issue maybe being a lack of nutrients in your diet at one particular time, like maybe when you were two or four, who knows, right? Mm. And so this is why, I mean, it's a strong case for people to put nutrients into their kids' food and into their own diet and stop feeding people refined foods and um, stop smothering things in animal-based products, which then further weaken your system um, as opposed to building it up. So so this is amazing for your heart. And I would love to, you know, interview you when you're 55 or 60 and let's just see if you're back on those meds or not. Um, I have a, you know, there's a high probability if you stick with this lifestyle, you won't be. Um, so I know that we have to wrap up here soon, but there are, there's a few things here that I wanted to jump into. And what I love about your business and what I said at the beginning, that it's rare for me to find an entrepreneur that is truly doing everything right in their business. And you are one of those businesses that I really uphold as being a model for sustainability, a model for a community, because you take it beyond it just being a business transaction with your customers, with your clients, you have education that you're doing, but you also have teamed up with Trees for the Future. So tell us about that. Yeah, that's right. So, um, before COVID, we would always, we would, when we opened the, the bakery, we saw, you know, people always say, is that to go? Is that to go? It's the first thing. So we were like, let's switch that around and say, is that for here? Would you like one of our cups? Um, outside the bakery, there's lots of seating in Creekside. So it was always like, we had nice ceramic cups. We were like, you know, feel free to take it outside. We trust that you're going to bring it back. You know, whoa, most people aren't going to do that. You know, if you, if you give them the, the trust, then normally they sort of, are happy to give that back so that was always our thing and then when the lockdown happened um we were able to look at a lot of data and and look at okay when we reopen um there was a lot of information coming out we weren't we weren't going to be able to offer people's reusable cups and we found that actually only 10 percent of our customers were bringing a cup back so we were like well that's if we do that it's like an opt-in thing whereas if it's just like mandatory that anyone that buys a coffee we plant a tree so we take it's a portion of our um, profit essentially but we're like the, the the manufacturing process all of our packaging is compostable like yourself but it's still the sort of manufacturing process and mm -hmm. the delivery and all these other things these other factors so we teamed up with trees for the future and every coffee that's sold we plant a tree and we're already up to about two and a half thousand trees within um, two and a half months our aim is at least ten thousand per year um, and that they're in sub-sahara africa um, so they work with farmers that are 
um, maybe their land's just been destroyed because of the heat and all this climate change. Um, and these trees are, are planted by the farmers. They're, they work together, they educate them, they do it themselves with, with the help of the, the team. Um, and it helps with um, shade, with wind protection, and they grow all these fruits and vegetables. First of all, a lot of them are, are starving. They haven't even mm -hmm. eaten when they first reach out to these families for 24 hours or more. And then within the first um, couple of years, um, it goes up to like 85% of them are, are eating well, and then they're able to produce enough to take to the market and then actually make a, an income from the farms, which is incredible. It's uh, amazing. I, I really hope in a few years time, we'll be able to go out to, to Africa and, and visit some of these farms um, that our customers and that the, the company has, has helped. Um, so that's really, really awesome project to be part of. Um, yeah, and, and also like we're, we're striving to be more and more organic. We're not 100%, but our, our goal is to be as much as possible. We've just teamed up with um, a really cool um, company that, um, uh, sorry, I'm having a mind block, um, Wild Tusker, sorry, okay. a cinnamon company. Um, so it's organic cinnamon um, made in Sri Lanka or grown in Sri Lanka and then and then we buy it and then for all the proceeds they donate um, a percentage to elephant sanctuaries wow. so it's just all these sort of like amazing companies charities businesses that are just sort of going a bit beyond um, our aim maybe in a few years time is to become a B Corp company where they analyze every sort of strain like what, what the delivery process and where you're sourcing everything from what ingredients you're using so that's that's definitely on our in our sites um, I love that yeah. yeah we'll put the b corp link down there so for companies who really want to be purchasing from organizations that have looked at all angles of their business so not even just where they buy their supplies from in the distribution channels and operation channels but also um, for how they're educating their staff, for example, like, do they have, you know, policies in place for, um, you know, not just, you know, race discrimination and sex, sexual discrimination or, you know, gender discrimination, but looking at all areas of social justice um, issues and do you have policies in place for your company also? Do you hire, you know, people of diversity and people of color and, you know, um, yeah, so being B Corp certified, it, it is a big deal. And yeah, look at the list of B Corp companies and choose to buy your products and um, and other services through them. It's definitely really important. You all have no problem getting B Corp certified for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's a there's a lot of um, exciting things we we want to put into motion over over the next few years. Like the coffee, the espresso coffee is is direct trade. So they're not certified organic. It's like a lot of the farmers in Pemberton, you know, to get mm. certified organic is quite difficult sometimes so, or, or expensive. So that's why we're sort of aiming sort of 90% organic because hopefully the, the other, um, you know, suppliers that we use, they're pretty much organic. They're just not certified. So that's yeah. where we'd like to be. Um, but all the, all the flour that we use, all the grain, we do a lot of milling. We mill our own whole grains. Is all organic. We use Vancouver Island salt, um, which is an, an amazing salt. Like you open up the tubs and it just smells like the sea. It's, wow. it's amazing. If you're going to make 
sourdough with three ingredients, water, flour, and salt, why not use the best? Yeah, exactly. And which is why your bread tastes so incredible. Like it is really beyond it. I'm like going to call my husband right now because he's in Whistler and I'm going to be like, make sure you go get some. Um, And yeah, no, you're doing amazing things. And it's true what you said about the organic labeling as well is that uh, a lot of people say, well, oh, you know, we can't trust organic labeling and we can't. I'm like, well, what is your option? You know, what are you going to do is, you know, just buy everything non-organic because you don't trust it. But also they need to understand that it is a very complicated process. It's very expensive. It takes a minimum of seven years or average of seven years or minimum, I think. And, um, but one thing people can do, like if you're at the farmer's markets, or even if you're at the grocery store, you can go up to the produce manager, the person who does all the buying and just say, Hey, which companies, like which fruits and vegetables and grains and other produce do you have here that is not certified organic, but you know, the company doesn't spray. And just Mm -hmm. ask that question. And I do that at farmer's markets because, you know, there will sometimes only be two or three options at the farmer's market, but there's actually three or four other options where the people are like, oh no, we don't put anything on our crops. And that means you can be supporting them as opposed to maybe just putting your nose up at, you know, oh, they're not organic or, you know, Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter because I can't trust anything. You want to just ultimately talk to the farmer. Yeah, absolutely. And then also, I mean, you're still supporting local, maybe they can't do everything organic, but at least you're avoiding the plastic. You know, the yeah. plastic is also a huge thing. So, you know, why not put that money back into your local community as well? Yeah, I love that. Um, there's one more thing I want to touch on before. I know you have a meeting to go to in nine minutes, but um, you, I saw your post on what, uh, what stone grinder you use for milling your flour. Mm-hmm. And can you talk just a little bit about that? Because I, you know, in the vegan world and in you know the vegetarian world people think that well it says organic flour so i'm just going to use it but what they don't realize is that it's devoid of nutrients so talk a little bit about that yeah totally i mean a lot of the flowers that you buy um it came from like in the 1960s they just wanted they started just producing bread as fast as they can so they took out all the healthy things. They sort of like sifted out all the bran and the endosperm and all these sort of things that were like actually give you nutrients and everything. It's just this pure white, horrible flour that created these sort of like, you know, wonder bread and things where it's basically just piped in this weird paste and bake it. And it was a bread made in two hours. Um, and, and thankfully now we're coming back to sort of sourdough, slow fermentation. Our breads take, you know, 36 hours to make fermenting the grains um and we love whole grains like we we buy um whole grain from um armstrong which is about five hours from whistler um still in bc uh, an amazing organic grain farm but they only sell whole grain um so yeah fieldstone organics a great company and they have a lot of heritage grains as well that people would never have used like einkorn and emma and these really interesting grains. Um, and then we use a small meal called a Como meal. Um, and it's, it's just a small stone grill uh, meal. Um, and it doesn't sift out anything. Um, we have done breads before where you can actually sift out the bran yourself and almost do like a porridge bread. So you could boil the kettle, pour over a small amount of water and it just activates even more nutrients, allow that to cool and then mix that through your dough um a really interesting way of of sort of using the whole grain but not just 
directly in that way you get lots more flavor as well um, no oils or anything like that you can the salt is very important just to um, slow down the fermentation so your bread doesn't overproof but you can reduce that down you could use one percent to the flour so you could use 10 grams of salt to a kilo of flour so you don't need to use much at all um, we generally go two to two and a half percent um, just to bring out a little bit more flavor but um, nothing compared to what you buy in the store yeah. in the average store store bread that you buy has 25 to 35 ingredients and like i said our bread has three so you have to ask yourself what are all those other ingredients that they're putting in to preserve and um, we choose not to slice our bread because if you slice as you go, it just lasts a lot longer. Um, so there's a few things at our bakery that we do a little bit different, slowing it down um, and trying to sort of, it's a bit hard now because you only have a shorter amount of time with each customer. We're only allowed two customers in the bakery at a time. Mm -hmm. so, um, but we try and sort of like, like you say, educate people through our social media. Um, Instagram has been great during COVID because people have been baking a lot more um eds underscore bread b-r-e-d awesome. uh, uh, people can check us out for any sort of you know um bread photography and videos we try and do sort of little tutorials and things like that behind amazing. the scenes action yeah you have an amazing social media site and following it's it's truly beautiful um and then you also have a promo code to offer people so if you're in whistler you can use this promo code tell us about that Absolutely, yeah. If you're in Whistler or Vancouver or Squamish and, and you know that you can you can make it up to Whistler to, to collect in person, like we said, we can't send it, um, you can get 15% off um, your total order, the first order, and the promo code is EATREALTOHEAL. Um, so yeah, you just go to uh, edsbread.com, E-D-S-B-R-E-D.com. And then, yeah, so the discount code is eat real to heal and no spaces or anything like that. And they can jump on and use it and tell their friends. And um, yeah, hopefully they can shop some bread and cookies and cinnamon buns or whatever they like. Yeah, definitely. And for all our listeners out there too, especially the ones that live in the area or are going to be traveling to Whistler. I mean, Ed's Bread is definitely the place where you want to be um, buying everything from because it's whole foods. They're truly the definition of whole foods. You know, the nutrients aren't removed. In fact, the nutrients are enhanced and brought out. And so that's what you really want to be feeding your kids and feeding yourself and feeding your friends. So shop there and get everything from Ed's Bread. Ed, it's been amazing you having or amazing having you on our show. Thank Natasha as well for bringing the world of veganism into your life for yeah. us. Yeah. Well, thank you for having yeah. me. Uh, it's been really fun. Yeah. Hopefully thanks so much. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. We have lots more to talk about for sure. Um, thanks everyone for being on the show and we will see you for the next podcast. Hey everyone, I really hope you enjoyed that show. And I just want to re repeat what the promo code is. It's eat real to heal. Please use that on Ed's site when you order your next loaf of bread and other beautiful goods that he sells at his retail shop in Creekside, Whistler, British Columbia. Now, before I leave you to go off to 
work out your body, move your body, whether it's through dance or ballet or walking or biking or hiking or cycling, whatever it is, however it is that you love to move your body. So important that you do that in a way that inspires you, that brings a smile to your face. But before you go out there, and move on to the next thing. I wanted to share with you that we are offering our Eat Real to Heal course, which is a five-week program that teaches you the art and science of using food as medicine to reverse disease. Now, this course is normally $600, but as part of our 22 million strong campaign, we had bumped it down to $97. And then because we wanna reach 22 million people by 2030 in learning about food as medicine and how to reverse their disease, for the month of October, you can get our course for just $22. That's right. So head over to the link below everything's below in the show notes and you can access that course for $22 and you can take that course, understand how to use food as medicine, understand why you want to incorporate some additional juicing into your diet to get those nutrients that you just can't get through food in higher quantity, understand how you do need to get some blood work done to understand your nutritional deficiencies and also how to restore those nutritional deficiencies when you just can't get those nutrients through food at all. So we talk about that. We talk about how to detox your liver. It's 18 hours of instruction. So head over to our site and learn how you can access that course for $22 and start that five-week program today. And if you don't already have a copy of my book, you can get my book on Amazon. It's been a number one bestseller on Amazon for well over a year. Get a copy of that. It has helped people all over the globe understand what real food is, understand how to use food as medicine, and also help them to reverse their chronic diseases so they can get off their meds, have their surgeries canceled by their medical teams, and then they've been able to optimize their health and ultimately optimize their life so that they can live at their full peak potential that they were born to be. So thanks everyone for being here and listening to our show. Stay tuned for next week's podcast. We have a show coming out every single week. If there's somebody out there that has truly inspired you in the plant-based whole food movement, whether it's a researcher, a scientist, a doctor, um, or an individual that has used food as medicine to reverse their disease, message us. We'd love to get them on the show and to share their story. It's never easy when you go against the grain and you say no to the medications, or you say, sure, medications for now, but I don't want them long-term and I want to reverse my disease. It takes courage to do that because you need to understand the science, you need to understand the outcomes, the prognosis, you need to understand your diagnosis, and it takes courage to make a decision where you want to reclaim your life by reclaiming your health. So we'd love to share that story on our podcast on this Eat Real to Heal show. So thanks everyone for being here and special thanks goes out to Becky for editing our show each week and for putting all the social media pieces together. Thank you. Couldn't do the show without Becky. And thanks to our team out there as well, who is always getting me on other people's podcasts as well as recruiting guests to our show. So everyone eat well, do well, go out there, move your body, make healthy food choices and follow us in my 22 million strong training tribe Facebook group so you can learn how I'm training to run and cycle across Canada in 75 days on a plant 
based diet. So talk to you soon, everyone. Bye for now.